Please open your Bible, if you have one, to the 119th Psalm. While you turn there, it's great to be back, having had two weeks of staycation, getting some projects done. Pastor Daniel uh, ably handled the section of James. And having been in James for a bit, we're now going to alternate back to Psalm 119 for the next few weeks. We're going through these simultaneously. Uh, And this morning, we're going to begin the uh, strophe, the teth strophe. If you remember, Psalm 119 is a massive acrostic. We're eight verses at a time. Each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in English, it should be the equivalent of the first eight verses beginning with A and then B. Except with Hebrews, Aleph, Beth, moving on. Don't ask me to recite the entire Hebrew alphabet. I will fail. Managed to hold on to most of my Greek, but my Hebrew is, is pathetic. And this morning, we're going to look at these eight verses, but I'd like to begin by actually reading three strophes. Um, this morning's, and then what I think will be the next two weeks. There's sort of a subset in Psalm 119. You'll remember it's a psalm written uh, for people in exile or something like that. There's a sense of alienation. There's... there's Enemies, princes, foreign rulers, the context fits well for someone like Daniel. Now, God didn't give us all that information precisely, I think, so that we can put it into our situation as well. But it's focused on God's word and the God of the word. It's intentionally relational, and it's dealing with suffering. And this morning's strophe... Starting in verse 65, introduces a new word, a new theme, affliction. And yet, strangely enough, it focuses on goodness. So I'd like to read with you um, Psalm 119, verses 65 through 88. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame. Because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me. That they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. 
My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on the earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Lord God, I pray this morning that as we begin to look at this section, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would help us to see your goodness in affliction, your good purposes through it, that we would be confident that you are good and do good, even when it is painful, that we would cry out to you for comfort, for life, for strength, and that you would glorify yourself in it. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason why I wanted to read all three strophes is in these three in particular, you've noticed the insolent show up, his persecutors, the deal, the, the issue of affliction and suffering dominate, and he has more than one response to that. We're going to look at a primary one this morning, seeing God's goodness, seeing the goodness of God's purposes in affliction. It's not his only answer. The danger of just looking at this myopically is you might think, well, that's the only thing you do. But you see, whereas this strophe focuses on confessing, God, you are good. It's good of you. You're faithful to me in affliction. In the next strophe, he's crying out for God's comfort and strength. And in the third strophe, he's calling out for justice and judgment. All three of these are righteous, legitimate responses to suffering. And so it's it's important for us to see that. This is not the totality of the answer to suffering. But it's first for a reason. You may have noticed some of the themes in some of the songs we sang this morning. There are not many that celebrate these truths. In fact, really the only two I know of we sang this morning. That God in his goodness, in his kindness, in his faithfulness might afflict us. Might send suffering for our good as an act of his loving kindness. But that is the testimony of scripture. And it's, it's a truth we need to embrace. Otherwise, when calamity comes, when suffering comes, we will have the double suffering of the calamity itself and feelings of betrayal, confusion, vexation. Why has God let this happen? So I would encourage you to settle these issues now, ahead of time, so that in the affliction, you can also experience God's comfort. You can be confident he is good and does good. There's a, there's a clear theme to our strophe this morning, verses 65 to 72. The word good in the ESV appears four, three, four times. The Hebrew word behind it, tob, occurs six times. Five of those six times is the first word in the sentence. Literally, verse 65, good you have dealt with your servant. Verse 66, good judgment and knowledge teach me. Verse 68, good you are 
and good you do. Verse 71, good it was for me that I was afflicted. And verse 72, good the law of your mouth to me more than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So, so one of the main themes here, goodness, God's goodness is inescapable. Six times front-loaded at the head of the sentences is inescapable. And yet the irony being this is a strove focusing on suffering and affliction. That word for affliction that occurs three times in this psalm here in verse 67, in verse 71, and then next week in verse 75. And so God has wedded together the theme of his goodness and of our suffering in this strove. The goodness of God in the school of affliction. I want to suggest we can look at this strophe in, in three sections. The first, point one, to follow the example of the psalmist is to remember the Lord's goodness. Remember the Lord's goodness. Verses 65 through 67. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the psalmist here is focusing on past events, what happened before. You have dealt, past tense, before I was afflicted. He's looking backwards to God's faithfulness. He's preparing himself, I believe, for the suffering of his present persecutors in the second section. But he begins by looking at God's goodness in the past. That's a good model for us as well. You want strength for dealing with trials today, remind yourself, look back to God's past faithfulness. The logic's simple. If God could be trusted upon then, if he proved faithful then, ought I not to trust him now? He does not look, though, to God's goodness in things we may ordinarily, obviously see as good. We're going to see that what he's looking at, he's confessing, is the appraisal of God's restoration of him through suffering. In fact, your first blank, your point A, his appraisal of his restoration. Sort of a summary statement, the opening confession. Good you have done to me, O Lord. Good. The Lord has done good to him. That's sort of the overarching theme even of this whole stroke. I'm going to go through what God's done. I'm going to go through my suffering. But right up front, you have done good to me, is what he confesses. His appraisal of his restoration. The book of Deuteronomy um, goes back and forth. God promising to do good to his people if they'll be faithful. God promising calamity and curses if they're not. In fact, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. I'm sure many of you have memorized this verse in Awana. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. So the psalmist begins, and he begins a subsection of this psalm, these three strophes, focusing on lament and suffering. It's going to culminate him crying out that God would judge his enemies, that God would take it away. But he start, his starting place is to see the goodness of God in it. It's not either or. You can... On the one hand, hate, want taken from you, suffering, and yet see the goodness of God in it. It's it's not exclusive. That's one of the reasons why I want you to read 
all these verses, you might just think from this one strophe, okay, all you can do is see good in it. You, you need to see good in it. This is consistent with James, right? Count it all joy, my beloved brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's not the only answer. He, he will call out for comfort and strength, and he will call out for justice and judgment. But he begins, whatever else you make of this awful situation, God has done good to him. We need to settle that in our minds. It's not that God has lost control, and it's not that God is capricious. He is good. He's done good to him. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. So the Lord has done good to him, and the Lord has done it in keeping. The Lord has kept his word to him. That's going to be part of the theme here. God has been faithful to his word, and in response, we're to see the psalmist wants to also be faithful to his word. This is the very thing God has promised to do. So his opening confession, Lord, in what I'm about to cover and recount, you have been good to me, and you have kept your word to me. That's a starting place in suffering. By contrast, remove from your mind any questions. Is, is God not being faithful? Is God taking a holiday and he's not being good? No, you can be sure, we can be sure, I can be sure, no matter what befalls us. What, what does the psalm say? What does Paul quote in Romans 8? We, like sheep, are being slaughtered every day, and yet nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. For your sake. No, his appraisal of this restoration, his appraisal of his suffering, is God has done good to him. God has kept his word to him. Which leads then to his prayer. We have his appraisal of his restoration. And the result of that restoration is this request. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. So he gives this overarching theme. What you did to me in the past, Lord, was good. It was in keeping with your word. In light of that, he prays for good judgment and knowledge. The word for judgment literally can be translated taste. It's, it's a sense of discernment. and Discernment almost by touch or by recognition. He, he wants the wisdom to separate the good from the bad. To separate righteousness from evil. This is similar to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God has done good to him. God has restored him. God has kept his word to him. His response, help me now, even more so, to have good judgment, discernment, to be able to separate the good from the bad, the true from the false. His prayer is for discernment. And he gives a ground for his prayer. Um, for I believe in your commandments. And here we see his confession of faith. The argument is this, Lord, I believe what you, your word says, so give me the ability to apply it. I need in time and space to be able to distinguish, to make these separations. We're going to see there's a reason for that in just a moment. Point C, his confession, his confession about his restoration. And let's go through this and sort of work backwards. What is it that God has been faithful to do to him? What has caused him to pray for discernment? 
It's his confession in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. This is where we learn what God has done that was faithful and good. What God did that was in keeping with his word. What is the cause for his prayer? He was straying. Now the word here for straying likely means... Uh, the nuances of this word, not the high-handed sins of rebellion, but rather the, the sins of omission, the sins that are unintentional. You know, we oftentimes say, you hear people say all sins the same. Y- yeah, no. In one sense, you break one part of the law, you break all of it. But the Old Testament and the New Testament can distinguish between high-handed sins, sins that are done in full knowledge and intent and rebellion, raised fist sins at God, Listen to Leviticus 5, 17 to 18 for another type of sin. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. So unintentionally not obeying God is still sin, but it's of a different order and a different type than what the Old Testament can call high-handed sins. So the correction, the discipline here, isn't necessarily for a specific act. The picture is rather, I believe, he was straying. He was inattentive in some area. He was not wholly devoted to the Lord in some area. Probably primarily through accident, through inattention, through a lack of zeal. This is less an issue of he was committing some grave-focused sin, and rather there was some wanderingness to him habitually. He was straying, here's your blank, before the Lord afflicted him. He was straying before the Lord afflicted him. Now, it doesn't say here explicitly the Lord afflicted him. It's pretty clear by implication, but look down to verse 75. Removes all doubt. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. So this affliction that brought correction is from the Lord. Is from the Lord. Can we no question about that? The Lord sent strong suffering into his life to grow him, to turn him from his wandering. The result we see before He was straying before the Lord afflicted him. Now, he keeps his word. We see obedience. We see obedience. So, he remembers God's goodness. And this is remarkable, because he's in suffering now. We see that. He's currently in suffering. But he looks back to past suffering, and he begins, and I think this is partly how he processes through his present suffering. I know that in the past, God sent affliction into my life. It was painful, but I know that he used that to refine me, to stop my wandering, to cause me to keep his word. You can see how this is potentially setting up his current interpretation of his affliction. It takes faith to see that. That I think also helps explain his prayer for discernment. I mean... If, if God is sending the suffering to, 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 to sanctify me, I want to get sanctified. I want to hurry up and learn the lesson God is teaching me. Um, not all suffering is for this. The Bible, some, some suffering is simply for the glory of God. You think of the man born blind and Jesus' disciples said, who sinned? Did he sin or his parents sin? 
No one. Not all suffering is this, but there is a category for suffering, affliction from the Lord to sanctify us. So what we sang about this morning. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thine all in me. The Lord does that. God loves us too much to let us be happy in sin. Think that through. God loves us too much to let us be happy in sin. Parents get this. People who have friends struggling with addiction get this. In one sense, they'd be happier in the short term if you left them alone. But you know the path they're on is leading them to ruin, and so you will make them uncomfortable and unhappy as you call on them to, to quit whatever destructive habit they have. We understand this. Well, our Heavenly Father loves us in the same way. We, we sometimes think that people put the problem of evil on. If God's good, why, do, why is there suffering? As if a good God wouldn't allow any suffering. What we're going to see in a few minutes, if God doesn't discipline you, you're not his kid. You're not his child. A mark of a loving parent is discipline. Um, so God being good doesn't mean he just makes happy, nice things happen to you all the time. That's later. We are going through a refining process Corrective process now to prepare us for a weight of glory that is incomparable. So he looks back on the past. He confesses God's goodness. Again, this is exactly what James says. Count it all joy. Why? Your trials grow you, mature you. Paul in Romans 5, same theme. I want you to get this. It's not just unique to the Psalms. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now he keeps his word. Turn, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Most of last week's ABF, after Pastor Daniel's excellent second message on James 2 with faith and works, centered around the issue of assurance. And one of the strong primary places the Bible points us to for recognizing who and what we are is the fruit we're bearing. You'll know them by their fruit. But after the ABF, having some private conversations, one of the other things I find assurance from is my father's rod and his crook, his Heavenly discipline, seeing God guarding me, bringing me back, restraining me, disciplining me, chastising me, I find great comfort from. In fact, I probably am never more nervous and uncomfortable than when I feel I deserve discipline and I'm not getting it. And I start to, uh uh-oh. So Hebrews 12, we're going to read from 3 to 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And he quotes Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline 
of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, Paul probably couldn't have written that if he was writing it today. I could point you to a number, but in his day it was assumed. It was a safe assumption. This, sorry, I said Paul. The author of Hebrews, I mean. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline is a mark of his love. It's a mark that you're his child. Verse 8, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so the psalmist reminds himself of this, and he confesses, God was good. No doubt it was painful. We'll see that in the coming strophes. It's not to remove the sting, the anguish. But he knows it's a mark of God's faithfulness. He knows God has done good to him in keeping with his word as he remembers the Lord's goodness. Now, point two, consider the Lord's goodness. Now, I believe his attention is coming to what's going on in the present. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Now, what is the affliction he's dealing with? Well, it's clear it's largely comprised of these, he calls the insolent. They show up here. They show up in the next strophe in verse 78. The insolent, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. They show up in the next strophe in verse 85. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. So they're the consistent Burr, pain, anguish. But he begins considering them with a stark contrast. He considers the Lord first. So consider the Lord's goodness, and he starts with his confidence in the goodness of the Lord. I love this confession. There is so much profound truth here in what is six words in English. You are good and do good. You are good and you do good. So we're getting a declaration, a confession of God's person, who he is. And who is God? He is good. He is good. Why say that? Well, I think precisely because we can be tempted in trials to question the goodness of God. To question what he is doing. And so he settles it again. You are good. And you do good. His being is good and his activity is good. Who he is through and through is good. What he does through and through is good. Again, this is similar to James, right? Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God himself is not tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. 
My beloved brothers, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, coming down from above, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Of his own will, he brought us forth as a kind of first fruits. God only gives good gifts. God is wholly good, wholly to be trusted. And all that he does towards us is good. Romans eight twenty eight. you know this. We know that for those who love God, all things... How many things? Most things? A lot of things? All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. God is good and he does good. That's what he settles his confidence in. You can trust God in your affliction. You can trust the Lord in your suffering. You can trust his person and you can trust his activity. Which then leads to his response, the psalmist's response. He seeks to learn God's word. He reminds us of God. God is nothing but good, and he does nothing but good towards me. Therefore, he wants the Lord to instruct him, to teach him his word. That's that's the rationale and the logic here. But in contrast to his confidence in the goodness of the Lord, we have the contrast of his wicked adversaries. We see also who they are and what they do. So we begin with the anchor, God is good, God does good. Whatever else is going on. Now, again, don't don't mistake the fact that, that he will in just a few verses be crying out for the Lord to stop it, to take it away, to bring judgment. These don't rule each other out. You can... You can be in great anguish and sorrow over what is taking place. You can cry out to the Lord to remove it. And you need to be able to say, but God is good. And he's doing good to me. And he's being faithful. And he's keeping his word. We need to be able to do both. It's not either or. The contrast of his wicked adversaries. The insolent smear me with lies. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Okay. These, these are the source of his pain and his affliction. Um, to make that really clear, look over 84 through 86. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolence of thug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on the earth. And they're, they're slandering him. Um, the, the word picture is vivid. They're smearing. It's sticky. They're lying about him and it's sticking. It's his reputation, what people think of him. It's being corrupted. They're slandering him, speaking evil of him, and it's beginning to work. Some people are listening. It's, it's sticking. That's the idea. So God only does good, but these people are doing evil. They're, they're, they're slanderers, gossips, accusers, and it hurts. It's painful. He's going to ask the Lord to take it away. When we get to verse 84 through 87. But here, he puts them in contrast to the God who is good and does good. These people are not good. They don't do good. They are evil. And they smear him with lies. And in contrast to them, he 
recommits himself to God's word. Again, we're seeing that the product of his past discipline, in some senses, God was preparing him for this trial through the past affliction. God previously got his attention further, caused him to walk in his word, caused him to keep his word. And now we see the fruit of that. The insult, he's, he's being attacked, he's being persecuted, he's being lied about to others. And yet he's devoted to the Lord. With my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Well, he wasn't doing that prior to the affliction of verse 67, was he? So even here, we can see God preparing him for what is prepared for him. He, he, when, he, when he makes those statements in the psalm, we can, we can trip up on that, thinking he's boasting. No, he's just confessed the source of it. Why is he keeping the Lord's precepts? Because the Lord afflicted him and trained him and corrected him. He's, he's giving the credit of that to God. But there's a stark contrast between his enemies who lie and smear lies and his response, which is to trust and keep God's word. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. The psalmist's response here, you're blank. He actively lives God's word. He actively lives God's words. What do they do? They, the insolent smear with lies. What is the psalmist's response? He actively lives God's word. And then we learn about who they are. This is in reverse order from what we saw with the Lord. First, who the Lord is, he's good, and what he does is good. Now, the insolent, what do they do? They smear him with lies. The insolent, what are they like? Who are they? Their hearts are utterly unfeeling. That's the idea here, numbness. Spiritual insensitivity. This is part and parcel of the whole plethora of biblical imageries of spiritual sensory deprivation. You know, Jesus can talk about people having eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. It's picked up from Isaiah. Having a heart of stone is another picture. What's that? They're insensitive. They're aware to some degree of the Lord and his word. And does it stir up longing? Does it stir up conviction? Does it give hope and encouragement? No, it's unfeeling. Like water off a duck's back. No response. They're numb to God's word. That, that's the contrast between him and them. He, he longs for it. He loves it. He's committing himself to it. Their, their heart's unfeeling. It has no effect on them. And it's not any indication of the lack of beauty and power for God's word. It's rather an indication of their corruption. Their guilt. What are they like? Their hearts are utterly unfeeling. The same language is used in Isaiah 6. Um, the Lord's commissioning of Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull. Literally make the heart of this people fat. Their ears heavy. Blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. So these people who are attacking him. One of the marks of their guilt is their being is they are numb and unresponsive to God's word. Helps explain why they attack his servants. Well, the psalmist has a response here as well. Their hearts unfeeling. They have no emotional response, no conviction. But in contrast to that, he says, I delight in your law. So he's contrasting who they are and what they do with the living God and with himself. Their heart Fat and numb and unfeeling. His heart is alive with delight for God's law. He sincerely loves God's word. 
He sincerely loves God's word. So we're getting our first look in this subsection of, of the current suffering. A group of people, the insolent, arrogant, they don't have any conviction of God's word. They don't have any concern for his glory. They're spiritually numb. They're attacking him, accusing him of things, and it's beginning to work somehow. He's feeling like he's close to death. We know in the case of Daniel, again, not saying Daniel wrote Psalm 119, he may have, but the accusations were of crimes and treason. Daniel got thrown in the lion's den because of what his slanderers and accusers were doing to him. There was real consequences. It wasn't just his feelings were hurt. His life was put in peril. And verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on the earth. These insolent slanderers are effective. And yet, they couldn't be more different from the God he loves and serves, and even from his own response. He delights in God's law. Point three, then, finally, before our closing song. Treasure the Lord's goodness. Treasure the Lord's goodness. This is another one of those verses that in the Hebrew begins with good. Good for me that I was afflicted. This is an even stronger statement than what he made in verse 67. In verse 67, he, he can see it logically. Okay, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. But now, having looked at God's past faithfulness, looking at his adversaries in contrast to the Lord's character, he can make the even stronger statement. No, it was, it's, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good that he was afflicted. Now, there's two reasons, at least in this strophe, for why such affliction would be good. We've seen in verse 67 that the Lord has corrected him through his affliction. He was wandering. He was straying. Now he keeps his word. The Lord has corrected him through his affliction. But here we see also the Lord has instructed him through his affliction. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. There's a type of learning that can only be done through experience. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 8, speaks of Jesus Christ this way. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned some things through suffering. So the author of Hebrews says. And so there's a school of affliction where God can teach you things in no place else. Teaching you to trust him. Cast yourself upon him. There are, there are truths that God would have you know and learn that he cannot teach you in any other way. And so the psalmist here says it is good. Now, again, that's not the totality of the story, but it is a true part of the story. In your suffering, it's good. It's good that God is teaching you these things. If you think back to your Christian life, where are the periods where you've grown, where you've learned more about the Lord? Were they in times of comfort, mountaintop times, or were they in the dark valleys where the Lord smashed your pots and gourds, squashed your dreams, and caused you to rely solely on him? The psalmist here sees it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 
You'll call out for God to take the affliction away. He'll call out for comfort. It's, it's all coming. But the starting point, and, and what I would have you understand this morning, is along with all that, and the Psalms give us plenty of models, half of the Psalms to two-thirds of the Psalms deal with lament and crying out and for help. And so God has shown us and taught us how to cry out to him for help, for comfort, for strength. Revive me, strengthen me, give me help, remove this from me, save It's yes. But this morning, we also need to learn, Lord, you are sovereign over this, and you have brought this into my life, and you've done it for my good, and you are good. You do good. I can trust you. I can trust that you're teaching me things through this. I can trust that you're sanctifying me through this. That needs to be part of it as well. That's what I want you to hear this morning. God is good in the painful school of affliction. Because God's word is better. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is quite a comparison. Thousands of gold and silver pieces is a large fortune. It's no small amount of money. Millions of dollars might be a modern equivalent. You can only make this statement... When your values are set properly. That's one of the things God does to affliction. He takes away our idols. He smashes them to show us there are better things. I mean, it's the analogy of a parent taking a lollipop out of their child's mouth knowing they've prepared a steak dinner for them. They don't want to ruin their appetite. It's loving to say, no, no, you can't have some more Mike and Ikes before dinner. Right? No, no. The child doesn't view it as loving in the moment. But you, as the parent, know that'll spoil their appetite. You have a feast prepared for them. God's word is better. And think of the scales. Think of the scales. He's not saying salvation is better. It is better. He's not saying the Lord himself is better. He is better. But imagine someone came up to you and offered you, you can have one of the following. You can have $10 million cash, I'll make it gold, something you can move about. Or you can know God's word better. What are you going to choose? I don't think you choose knowing God's word better unless you've come somewhat through the school of affliction. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Get the logic. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why was it good? Because I got this better thing. I learned your statutes. How valuable is that? I'd rather learn God's statutes than have a mountain of gold and silver. That's what he's saying. Treasure the Lord's goodness because God's word is better because knowing and keeping God's word is his greatest desire. And it satisfies him. Get that as well. He is truly satisfied in the Lord and with his word. Because notice the connection. It's the word of your mouth. The law of your mouth. He treasures God's word because it's an emanation from him. The one who is faithful and good and does good has spoken it. As we close, turn to Philippians chapter 3 very quickly. I want you to see some of a a similar theme in Paul 
and then our worship team will come up and we'll sing our closing song. In Philippians 3, this is what God teaches his sons and daughters whom he loves and delights in. This is the lessons you learn in the school of affliction. Paul used to treasure and value his birth, his education, his tribe. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count thousands of gold and silver pieces as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. God was teaching Paul there are more valuable and precious things in this life than money, wealth, education, position. And it's found in knowing the God of the word, knowing his word. I'm going to call the worship team up now. Our closing song, God loves his children. He will shepherd us. He will hold us fast. He will sanctify us. And at times it will be a delight. And at times it will be painful. But he is good. And he does good. Please stand as we sing.